Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Hey guys, welcome back to Storytime Slayer Podcast. I am your hostess with the mostess, Haley Lira, and today I'm starting a multi-part series about the McDonald murders. This is a crazy decades-long case in search for justice. Before I jump into it, I just want to thank you so much for tuning into Storytime Slayer Podcast. Don't forget to go check out my social medias. I'm on Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok under Storytime Slayer, and Instagram is story underscore time underscore slayer. That is where I post all relevant photos, videos, interviews, anything pertaining to these case episodes. Now, one last thing. For the month of July, I'm doing something a little bit different. There's four weeks, four Wednesdays, and I'm going to be dropping a four-part series about the Jeffrey McDonald murder and the book Fatal Vision. If you want to subscribe to my podcast, you can get all four episodes to binge listen to right now. Otherwise, you have to wait for them to come out every Wednesday for this month of July. There's four episodes all together. However, if you do subscribe, I will be offering a bonus episode every month for your subscription. Okay, with that mouthful being said, thank you so much for being here and let's jump into the story. Just so you know, this case is a lot. It is going to be a lot of information thrown at you in this very first episode. So we're going to talk about the 911 call, the initial scene when police arrive, the only survivor's testimony of what happened, what the crime scene itself said to police, some inconsistencies with the survivor's story, and how the media reacted to this crime. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. February 1970 was when a supposed hippie gang high on acid randomly broke into the McDonald family apartment and slaughtered a mother, 26-year-old Colette, who was four months pregnant at the time, and her two daughters, five-year-old Kimberly and two-year-old Kristen. All had been bashed in the head with a club and stabbed repeatedly. This was a very merciless crime. To everybody's surprise, though, Jeff McDonald, Colette's husband, was fortunate to have survived the attack with practically no damage. Minimal wounds, you guys. As suspicious as that sounds, everyone who knew Jeff and Colette insisted there was no way Jeff could have done this. In fact, Jeff's biggest supporters were his in-laws, Colette's parents, Freddie and Mildred Kassab. His father-in-law testified on his behalf and said if given the chance and he had another daughter, he'd still want Jeff McDonald as his son-in-law all over again. However intangible it seemed that Jeff could not have done this, the evidence doesn't quite support Jeff's version of events. So it is 3.40 in the morning on February 17, 1970, when Jeff McDonald calls 911. Jeff sounds short of breath, saying that he needed help. There'd been a stabbing and to hurry. Jeff sounded very weak on the phone. He asked for military police and a doctor. And the reason Jeff asked specifically for military police is because he was an Army Special Forces captain and a physician who lived in a two-bedroom apartment in military housing at Fort Braggs in North Carolina. The address was 544 Castle Drive. About 10 minutes after calling, a dozen military police arrived. When help arrived to the house, it was completely dark, all the blinds are closed, the front door was locked, no one answered to knocking. They didn't want to break down the front door before making sure it was absolutely necessary because they were at a fellow officer's home. So they decided to check the back door, 
And when they went around back, it looked like the door was shut at first, but that's just because the screen door was shut. Behind the screen door, the actual back door was unlocked and open a little bit. So when you go through the back door, it leads to a utility room that connects to the master bathroom. And through that, you access Jeffrey and Colette McDonald's master bedroom. So that is where officers first find Colette and Jeff. When they went into the master bedroom, it was a bloodbath. Colette had been lying on the ground face up. She had one arm up over her head. One of her eyes was still left open. She was completely unrecognizable and looked to have already been dead, which she was. She sustained a lot of blunt force trauma all over her face, her head, and her body. Both of Colette's arms were broken. One of her arms was actually broken in two places from a defensive wound of her trying to guard herself from her attacker. Colette wasn't only beaten, she'd been stabbed over 35 times times, nine times in the neck and 20 times in the chest. When help arrived, Colette had been wearing just pink pajama bottoms and was completely topless. On top of Colette was a Hilton bath mat and a torn blue pajama top, which just sort of was like dropped on top of her. Next to Colette slumped or maybe hunched over her with his head down and his arm hugged around her neck was her husband, Jeff. It looked as if he was embracing her. If I'm not mistaken, first responders rolled Jeff over to possibly administer CPR because Jeff appeared to be really weak and out of it, but he was very much alive and cognitive. Jeff was significantly less wounded than his wife, Colette. He had a bruise on the left side of his forehead and two superficial stab wounds. One of them was in his abdomen and one was in his upper left arm. He also had a small cut on his right side near his ribs. However, his vitals were normal and no life-saving measures were needed to be administered by paramedics. Jeff thought he had been or was on the edge of going into shock. So what does a body do when it goes into shock? Medically, shock is when your body responds to a rapid drop in your blood pressure. Some signs and symptoms are dizziness, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, cool, clam, your ashy skin tone, elevated heart rate, and breathing. You may become drowsy or feel weak. However, Jeff showed no symptoms of going into shock. Jeff quickly told responders, check my kids, check my kids, and then he said four hippie acid heads did this. One of them was a white woman with long blonde hair, a floppy hat, and boots. The other three were men. One of the men was a black man with an army jacket, and the two other men were white guys. One of the guys had a mustache. Jeff said the woman with the hat was holding either a flashlight or a candle, and she kept saying, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Officers did go and check the two children. In five-year-old Kim's room, they found a horrifying bloodbath. Kim was in her bed and you could visibly see that she'd been beaten in the head with an object and stabbed several times in the throat. When I say she'd been beaten with something in the head, I mean her skull was visibly fractured and she was already deceased when officers found her. She'd been hit two times in the head and stabbed over 10 times in the throat. The scene in two-year-old Kristen's room was an equally horrifying sight. She had several stab wounds to her chest, back, arms, and hands. The stab wounds to her hands were obvious defensive wounds. All in all, Kristen had been stabbed over 48 times. Under her bed was a very large pool of blood, and she too was already deceased when police found her. 
Okay, now, y'all stay with me. I got to give you a lot of the bones before I can give you the meat of this story. But I promise you need all of it to get the bigger picture. So just hang tight. We're going to get to the juicy stuff in a minute. But you need to know this stuff first. Both the girls' bedroom lights had been off. So when police initially went to check the girls, they did not touch the light switches, nor did they disturb or change anything in the kids' bedroom. Jeff was strapped to a gurney and taken by ambulance to the hospital. It was reported to be pretty difficult and Jeff was not willing to load up and leave. He was visibly agitated. He kept asking about his family, if they were going to the hospital, if they were okay. Of course, I don't think anyone immediately wanted to tell him that his wife and children were deceased. So Jeff goes to the hospital and like I said, his wounds were minor in comparison to his family's. He's got a bruise, two superficial stabs, and a cut on his right side. All vitals were stable, and he didn't even need stitches. Jeff was said to be extremely agitated, and some of the doctors said he was rather borderline hysterical. Jeff had been talking about the attack in bits and pieces and also talking about his family in a way that made it seem he did not understand his family had died. Even though Jeff had mentioned that he'd tried to check on his children before he called 911 and realized that they were beyond life-saving measures, he would still teeter-totter back and forth. So on one hand, he would understand that they were likely deceased because he couldn't find their pulse himself before he called 911. And then on the other hand, he'd be like, where's my wife and kids? Jeff kept complaining about his right side and difficulty breathing. You see, Jeff was actually a doctor, so he kept insisting that his lung was punctured. The hospital checked it once, and it wasn't alarmingly low, so they checked it again later, and sure enough, Jeff was right. His lung had been punctured by the cut on his right side. It was just barely nicked. It was just barely punctured, y'all. So it was collapsing very, very, very slowly. The hospital did ultimately give Jeff a chest tube, though, at 7.30 a.m., And by 8 a.m., Jeff was asking for his BFF, Ron Harrison. He'd met Ron Harrison while working at Fort Bragg. So according to Jeff, here's what happened. The day before the murders, Jeff had worked a 24-hour shift at the hospital he'd been employed at. And then he turned around and worked a full eight-hour shift at his office. He said it was a nice, quiet, normal day. So after he finishes at work, Jeff goes and plays basketball for an hour and then takes his daughters to go see the pony he'd gotten them for Christmas. When they got home, he showered, put on his set of blue pajamas, Colette threw together a quick dinner, but then she had to run out the door for an evening college course she'd been taking. When asked, Jeff couldn't recall exactly what class Colette was taking and said it was something literature related. Colette goes to class after dinner. Jeff put two-year-old Kristen to bed around 7 p.m. And then he fell asleep on the living room floor for like an hour. Five-year-old Kim came and woke him up at 8 p.m. so they could watch her favorite show, Laugh In, together. Watching this show together is something they did regularly. After the show ended at 9, Jeff put Kimberly to bed. Colette got home at about 9.45, which was later than usual because she had to drop a friend off and pick up a gallon of milk. He said that they watched a little bit of late night TV, the 11 o'clock news, and then Colette turned in and went to bed a short time after the news. But Jeff stayed up to watch more TV, which he did until about 1 a.m. Not ready to go to sleep, Jeff read about 50 pages of a book, and then he said Kristen woke up. So he got her a bottle at about 2 After that, he finishes his book and he hand washes the dishes before turning in for bed. And that is when he realizes Kristen had gotten to his bed and she'd peed in it. 
But she'd only peed on his side of the bed, so he decided rather than wake up his pregnant wife, he would just move Kristen back to her bed and then grab an extra blanket and go to sleep on the couch. Jeff said he doesn't think he changed Kristen because she was only a tiny bit wet and he didn't want to, like, wake her up. So he just moved her to her own bed. Jeff mentions that it was Colette who would let the little girl repeatedly come into their room, despite him thinking that the little girl should be weaned from sleeping with them all together. Jeff said after falling asleep on the couch, he is woken up to the sound of yelling. Colette was yelling, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? And that he thinks his little girl was yelling, daddy, daddy, at the same time. Meanwhile, when he comes to standing in front of him are three men and one woman in the back. One of the three men had a bat or a club and another had a pokey thing, which he believed to be an ice pick. Further back in the room where the woman was, she was holding a candle or a flashlight saying, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. So Jeff said that he sat up and the black man hit him in the head with the club. Then Jeff felt a sharp stab on his right side and he thinks that was the ice pick. Jeff then wrestles with the men and in the process, his shirt gets ripped off of him and wrapped around his wrists during the struggle. He cannot get this freaking shirt off of his arms. So he's wrestling with these men all the way down to the other side of the sofa with his hands tangled as they attempt to stab at him. Then Jeff said he couldn't get his hands free. He ends up falling forward and blacking out. And the next thing Jeff remembers is waking up in the living room and it was completely dark except for the illumination from the kitchen light, which isn't really a lot. Jeff said he was completely unsure how much time had passed, though, after he'd blacked out and thought that he was going into shock. He said he thought he was going into shock because he felt extremely cold. In fact, Jeff stressed over and over and over that he thought he was going into shock. But once Jeff registered that he'd blacked out and he'd woken up, he said, first thing he sees is his wife on the floor of their bedroom. So he goes to check on her and he actually removes a knife from her chest before attempting to administer CPR. He could tell by the bubbling in her chest, though CPR was beyond what she needed and that she was likely deceased. So then he gets up and he goes and he checks his children. And by the way, while he's in the middle of telling this play-by-play of what happened, he's sure to point out that he did not turn on his children's lights to check on them. I'm unsure how somebody who's prescribed glasses went and checked on his children in the dark without his glasses on, but okay. He said that when he went to go check his children, he attempted to give Kimberly CPR, but again, her injuries beyond life-saving measures and he could not find a pulse. So next, Jeff said he went to go check on his own injuries in the hallway bathroom after Jeff makes a 911 phone call from the master bedroom. And he asked the operator for a doctor and military police. Jeff said the 911 operator asked him for his social security number or some sort of identification. I've never heard of that. But maybe it was to confirm his military affiliation. I don't know. Jeff said that he was in a, quote, state of shock. So he decided to set the phone down or hang up. And he goes and he checks for pulses again on his wife and his children. 
Next, he goes to the kitchen to call 911. There was a two to three minute time span between the 911 calls. And this time when he picks up the kitchen phone, the operator is actually still on the line. And this time she sends help in less than 10 minutes. A dozen officers were on scene. And his 911 call is described to have sound very weak. He said very little, just the bare minimum help. There's been a stabbing, help, and gives them the address. So that was Jeff's story from the get, and he had to stay in the hospital for about nine days. Now I want to talk about the crime scene. So because Jeff lives on a military base, he actually lives in Fort Bragg's, North Carolina, where he is employed as a Green Beret Army doctor. Military police and investigators do their own internal investigation, and their crime scene experts are called CID. For one, CID canvassed the area and asked if anybody saw anything, and unfortunately, nobody came forward immediately. The murder weapons were found at the back door. We've got a 31-inch homemade club covered in blood and having one blue thread stuck to it was found near the back door. 20 feet from that was an ice pick and a paring knife. The knife and ice pick were wiped clean of blood. Inside the McDonald's master bedroom on the floor near the dresser was another paring knife. This one is the one that Jeff said he'd actually pulled out of Colette's chest. And the doorway of the bedroom leading to the hallway was Jeff and Colette's bed set. Like their sheets and their comforters, all their bedding was on the floor and saturated in blood with a little bit of urine as well. Carved into the couple's headboard and traced with blood was the words pig. Blood splatter was in the closet, on the ceiling, on the carpet, and streaks of blood were everywhere throughout the room. A few very small specks of rubber gloves were also found near Colette's body and a piece of a finger of a glove like the index finger was in the pile of bedding I'd mentioned on the couple's floor. The finger that was found was actually blood stained and it looked as if it had been dipped in blood to trace over the word pig on the headboard. The bath mat that Jeff used to cover Colette, it had bloody marks on the bath mat consistent with someone wiping off the ice pick and paring knife used to commit these crimes. There are 79 tiny blue fibers consistent with Jeffrey's pajama top that were found all over the master bedroom. 22 of them were on the top sheet, six were on a pillow, one was at the headboard, three were near the footboard, and 24 of these strings from his pajama top were found under Colette and 23 around her. Right in the master bedroom's doorway, the door that faces out towards the hallway, was a handful of blood drops that created a six-inch circle and blood spray was inside the doorframe. In the hallway, there was a trail of blood between Jeff and his daughter Kimberly's bedroom, as well as a single blue fiber from his shirt on the floor. There was also a smear of blood found in the hallway closet, and in that hallway closet, it was where the family kept excessive medication and first aid supplies. Not your usual first aid supplies or medications. Remember, Jeff is a doctor, so on top of your ibuprofen, band-aids, and typical first aid supplies, Jeff has diet pills, pain pills, scalpels, syringes, just an abundance of medical supplies. He himself admits it's abundance. It's a lot of medical supplies. In the family living room where the struggle between Jeff and four strangers occurred, the room that Jeff had been attacked and stabbed and hit with a club in had literally almost no blood and there was very few signs of a struggle. 
Um, the coffee table had been tipped over onto a stack of magazines and the CID thought this coffee table doesn't look like it was actually knocked over. It looked like it was just like picked up and set on top of them. A tiny bit of dripped wax was on the coffee table, which potentially could have been from the blonde intruder's candle. And I'm almost positive there were no shirt fibers at all found in the living room. Those little blue threads that I'm talking about, none in the living room where this shirt was supposedly ripped. There was a flower pot that had been knocked over, but the plant fell out and was on the floor. However, the flower pot was sitting right side up. And this was just kind of like made investigators wonder, this had to have been staged because how would that flower pot sit right side up? Also in the corner of the room were Jeff's glasses, like they'd been knocked off during the struggle. And on one of the lenses was a single blood droplet. Something that really stood out to CID was the March 1970 edition of Esquire magazine in the living room. And that month's highlighted headline was, quote, evil lurks in California, end quote. So that month's magazine edition was about the violence, drugs, cult activity, and sexual deviancy taking over California. In the corner of the magazine was a smear of blood, and that was the only blood found in the living room, just that one finger smear on the corner of the Esquire magazine. Now, when I say it talked about the evils lurking in California, it was like talking about very specific cult activities and the way people under the influence of drugs were acting. It talked about the Manson murders. I mean, it wasn't just, oh, they're getting crazy in California. It was very specific. In the dining room on the floor, there was a few drops of blood smudged. The kitchen had very little in the way of evidence. Only five dime-sized drops of blood were on the kitchen floor directly in front of the kitchen sink cabinet. In fact, it was kind of an odd spot to find those droplets of blood. They actually matched up with Jeffrey's injuries if he had bent down and looked into the cabinet or retrieved something. So investigators looked down in the cabinet like they believed Jeffrey had done. And in the very, very, very back left corner were surgical gloves. The hallway's bathroom Jeffrey stopped in and checked his injuries had some blood smear on the wall to the left of the sink and some droplets of blood on the actual sink and on a step stool in the bathroom. As for Kimberly's room, there was cast off splatter, meaning blood splatter from an object that was already covered in blood and in motion on Kim's wall. Blood splatter was also found on another wall in the room and the ceiling. There was also drops of wax on the bedspread and on a chair in the little girl's room. There were 19 fibers from Jeff's pajama top in Kim's room. Three on her bed, one under her pillow, a long strand on her pillow, and 14 tucked into her blankets with her. In Kristen's room, there was an actual pool of blood next to her bed, and the entire side of her mattress was stained, as well as her blankets and pillows with blood. There's blood splatter on Kristen's walls next to her bed, and a bloody left footprint that was left exiting the bedroom, and there was two fibers of those little blue threads in Kristen's bed sheets as well. By a stroke of luck, the McDonald's all had different blood types. Jeff was type B, Colette was type A, Kim was AB positive, and Kristen was O negative. And this is going to be so important later. Listen, y'all, I know it's a lot. I will break it all down for you in a minute, but hang with me because this case is, it's crazy. So the CID spent four days combing through all the evidence of the crime scene with a fine tooth comb. There are a few things that stood out to them immediately. 
So fibers from Jeff's shirt were all over the house, inside the children's bed sheets, tucked in with them, everywhere except the living room where the shirt is said to have been ripped off his body and stuck around his wrist during a struggle. There was no blood in the living room, even though Jeff was stabbed and then blacked out and lied there for an undisclosed amount of time. Blood-stained splinters off of the club were found in all three bedrooms, even in Kristen's room, despite that she was stabbed and not bludgeoned with the club. However, no splinters were found in the living room where Jeff had supposedly been hit with the club himself. Those teeny tiny pieces of rubber glove they found near Colette's body and the finger of the glove that was found in the bed sheets, you know, to write the word pig, it was an exact match to the surgical glove Jeff had shoved in the back left corner of his kitchen sink. Now, despite Jeff calling 911 from two telephones after checking on his family for pulses and a very bloody, gruesome crime scene, there is no blood or fingerprints on either telephone. No matter how many times investigators tried re-tipping that coffee table over, it was impossible to make it fall the way they'd found it. They adamantly believed somebody picked it up and laid it on its side. This is a very small apartment. It's very hard to believe that there were four intruders and practically nothing disturbed other than that damn coffee table. When police asked Jeff if he recognized any of the weapons, he insisted no and said the couple did not even own an ice pick. Don't mess with me. This is 1970. Everybody had a damn ice pick. That's how you got ice off the block. As for the club, Jeff said he didn't recognize it either. However, the club had paint on it that was there prior to it being used to commit the murders. And that paint was an exact match to the paint used in his kid's rooms and the wood was an exact match to shelves that Jeff had built in the home meaning the club was made of the exact same type of wood and consistent with the shelving Jeff had built in the house. Jeff also wasn't wearing glasses during the crime he'd been asleep so how did they end up in the corner of the living room with just a single speck of blood on them? Also nothing seemed to be missing from the house. What was the intruder's motive? And then why didn't they kill or do further harm to Jeff? And lastly, how did the night patrol see nothing? Four hippies walking around and nobody saw anything in the area? Nobody. CID also thought it was in an unlikely place for a random intrusion just for the mere fact that there are a lot of dogs that live in the apartment complexes. Like it just doesn't seem feasible. But I think the most damning to police was the story that the blood evidence told because it did not align with Jeff's version of events. For starters, the six-inch blood circle by Jeff and Colette's door belonged to Kimberly, as well as the spray of blood on the inside of the doorframe. The other blood spots in Jeff and Colette's room belonged to Colette. As for the master bedroom sheets, these contain Kim and Colette's blood. Then in Kimberly's room, the cast-off blood splatter on the ceiling actually belonged to Colette, and the other blood splatter belonged to Kimberly. It was also Kim's blood drops in the hallway floor. Then in Kristen's room, the pool of blood on and near her bed did match her blood type, but the blood stains from Colette were also found on the little girl's bed, and it was Colette's blood splatter on Kristen's walls. The footprint left behind was by Jeff, but it was not Kristen's blood, it was Colette's. Jeff's blood was only found in a few places in the home. Those drops in front of the kitchen sink cabinet and the drops on the bathroom sink and the bathroom step stool. 
it seems very messy, but I promise we're going to straighten this out right now. So here's what police think happened. Let me preference this by saying police spoke with Colette's classmate, the one who Colette gave a ride to after school that day. And for starters, Jeff said Colette was taking some sort of literature class, but she was actually taking a psychology class. And in class, mind you, this is the class Colette took before going home and being murdered later that night. Colette spoke up, which stood out to her classmate because it wasn't very often that she did speak out in class. And Colette said that her daughter, Kristen, would still get in bed with her and her husband. And she thought it was time to transition her daughter out of her room and into her own bed because there just wasn't enough room. And either her or Jeff would have to go to the couch. But it was always Colette who went to the couch because she was the one protesting the little girl sleeping in the room. This was really interesting to police because Jeff had been saying the opposite. Jeff insisted Colette would let Kristen in without his approval and that he would sleep on the couch. So based on the blood evidence, here's what police think happened. Jeff and Colette had some sort of argument. He struck her in the master bedroom. Colette grabbed and ripped Jeff's pajama top then. Kimberly hears a struggle or an argument and she comes into the room and Jeff strikes her in the head with the club and she falls to the ground. Colette likely got the paring knife, and that is how Jeff got cut in the abdomen. Jeff then knocks Colette unconscious in the master bedroom closet with the club, and then he uses his sheets to pick up Kim and carry her into her room and put her in her bed. Hence how her blood got on his sheets and the blood drops in the hallway. He puts her in her bed, and he strikes Kim twice in the head with the club. The blood splatter from Colette onto Kim's ceiling is because Colette's blood was already on the club when he raised it overhead. Jeff then goes to the kitchen, gets his surgical gloves and the old hickory paring knife. It was his cut that left the blood drops in front of the kitchen sink from his abdomen. Then he goes to Kristen's room and he stabs her to death with this knife. In the meantime, Colette had actually come to and went to check Kristen. Jeffrey beats Colette with the club further in Kristen's room, breaking her arms. And that is how Kim and Colette's blood get onto Kristen's bed sheets when Jeff sets the club down on Kristen's bed. Then Jeff gets his comforter, brings it to Kristen's room, wraps Colette up in it and transfers her body back to the master bedroom and clubs her again. Now, the only thing I'm not sure about is if Jeff stabbed Colette while they were in Kristen's room or if Jeff stabbed Colette while they were in his bedroom. Then it is believed that Jeff went into the medical supply closet, got a scalpel, went into the bathroom and made an incision on his right side that would slightly puncture his lung. And because he was a medical professional, he was a he was a good doctor, too. He wasn't no Joe Blow when it came to his profession. So because of that, they think that he was able to just very slightly puncture his own lung, dispose of the evidence, stash the weapons, stage the scene, and then call 911. So that is what the crime scene is saying to police. I think it goes without saying that this story was big in the news. Jeffrey McDonald, a captain of the Army Special Forces and a doctor who lost his wife and two children in a heinous home attack by four hippies under the influence of acid. 
I know it seems far-fetched, and if this had happened any other year besides 1970, I think the public's reaction would have been totally different. But this is because six months before Jeffrey McDonald lost his family, the Manson family murders took place, and the Manson family murders made national headline when four or five members of Charles Manson's cult broke into a famous movie star named Sharon Tate's home. She was eight and a half months pregnant with her her husband and four guests were brutally murdered during a dinner party and the word pigs had been written in blood on the wall of her home. A short time later, the Manson cult killed an elderly couple before they were eventually caught. This is significant because the Tate-LaBianca murders were done by the Mansons and it was proven to be a gang of violent hippies who used acid and LSD heavily. The evidence in that case was undeniable and the killers happily admitted to partaking in the crime. So this significantly swayed the public opinion and direction the media went with these murders because from what I had seen and read, the public was genuinely terrified and the idea didn't really seem that far-fetched at all because it had actually happened just six months before this crime. Despite the fact that the public didn't really think Jeff did it, his in-laws didn't think Jeff did it, and nobody who knew the couple thought Jeff did it, Jeff was charged by the army for three counts of murder nine months after the killings. In the military, they do their own investigation and legal practices, which is kind of scary to me. Anyway, Jeff was charged and he was held in BOQ housing, which BOQ stands for Bachelor Office Headquarters. It's basically the military housing for single individuals with no spouses or families on base. And so he was kept in one of these rooms with a guard parked out front. He was, of course, sent home from work during the process. Don't worry, though. He was not lonely because he'd already been knocking boots with some civilian woman that worked on the military base in some capacity. Who in their right mind hooks up with a guy stood accused of murdering his pregnant wife and two small children? What a sleaze. Both of them. Okay, so this concludes part one and When we come back for part two, I'm going to tell you about the military's Article 23 hearing, the lives of Jeff and Colette, and so, so much more. This is a crazy crime, guys. I hate doing multiple parts and leaving you on a cliffhanger. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast if you want to go ahead and binge all four episodes. Otherwise, I will talk to you next week. Bye.